You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abual Samad. And uh, Sam, you made it back from Traverse City. You were at the uh, the seminars. I did. It's the uh, Management Briefing Seminars, which is uh, a conference, an annual conference that's been going on. This is the 52nd year, uh, originally organized by uh, the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute. And for about the last 15 years or so, that shifted over to the Center for Automotive Research, which was spun off uh, from Umtree uh, back in the late 90s. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a big conference, lots of uh, executives uh, from around the auto industry uh, coming together to say lots of to talk about lots of interesting topics that are about what's going on in the industry. Um, you know, and they, they usually cover a pretty wide variety of areas, um, you know, manufacturing, um, engineering, you know, regulations, um, retail side. Uh, but uh, this year, a lot of the focus, uh, as you might expect, was on uh, electrification, automation and mobility. Uh, and we'll we'll come back to that a little bit uh, later yeah. on in the show. And because of its focus, and I mean, it's it's a pretty sort of it sounds like it's a pretty uh, in-depth and important conference kind of every year it happens. But because of the focus this year, like all of our topics this week are <laughs> kind of like, yes. yeah, pretty, pretty related to the conference. But uh, no, I'm glad you made it back. It's episode 34 of uh, Wheel Bearings. And let's start with what we're driving. I, I think it might be a toss up this week about who has the more enjoyable vehicle. But uh, I, I think maybe... Well, we should probably just trade and you know figure it out for next week, but I, that's not going to happen because of geography. So anyway, why don't you go ahead and, and let us all in. Okay, so uh, I had uh, a Mercedes AMG E43 to uh, drive up to Traverse City this week, um, which is you, you poor, poor, poor guy. I know, it, <laughs> you know life life is hard sometimes, some days. Um, but uh, I've been I've been trying to get into the new E class for a while now, and for for various reasons. Um, cars that i had scheduled uh got pulled for other duty and so we had to reschedule i think this i think this was about the third or fourth attempt we had and finally managed to get one into my driveway um so uh 
the the new E class arrived last year. Uh, launched launched just about a year ago. Uh, debuted uh, the 2016 North American International Auto Show, and um, this time around, Mercedes and AMG have they've done two AMG variants. So right now, um, the E class is available as uh, a base a more basic E300, which has the the two liter turbo four cylinder, which is a very nice engine. And, you know, I've driven that previously in the um, in the uh, C300 coupe. Um, and then they've got two AMG variants. At the top end is the E63, which is the twin turbo V four liter V8. And that one's sort of the, uh, the spiritual successor to the original AMG hammer of the 1980s. And it's hard to believe it's been 30 years since the hammer, um, which was kind of the, the original, you know, high performance Mercedes sedan that AMG did. Um, the, uh, the mid-level, car uh is the e43 which has a twin turbo three liter v6 and that one's uh 396 horsepower and 384 foot pounds of torque i think um anyway it's it's got uh it's got plenty of grunt uh with you know close to 400 horsepower and 400 foot pounds yeah um, i mean i can't think of a a sort of a better way to take a trip too. like you took a road. This is like the perfect car for, for your week. It, it, it is, it is a very good road trip car in most respects. <clears throat> um, including, you know, and since, you know, this was a, uh, you know, an AMG model with lots of options in there. It had, you know, goodies like, uh, you know, 600 way power seats. Um, or at least it seemed that way. Uh, and, uh, you know, had massaging seats, which was, you know, handy when you're on the road for four hours at a stretch. Uh, and you can pick from a, a, a wide array of different massage patterns. So there's these little actuators, you know, in the seat back and the seat cushion, and you can go through and you can waste a lot of time, you know, going through all the different, uh, um, different rhythms, uh, you know, to, um, get your, you know, get your uh, back muscles and your backside uh, um, kind of in motion a little bit while you're sitting there for extended periods of time. Um, I, I, you know, personally, I found the seats fit me very well. My, my wife was somewhat less enamored with the, uh, with the seat, but you know, I mean, that's no, even though it seems that no matter how many power adjustments you have in a seat, um, it's hard to make, it's hard to get something that's going to fit everybody, you know, perfectly. Um, but that's, you know, that's just the, the nature of things. Um, what was her sort of main complaint was just, she couldn't get the, the, like the seat back in the bottom and in the right way, or was the bolstering too much or. Yeah. The, the bolstering, uh, it was, it was hitting her in the wrong place in a couple of spots. And yeah. after, after a couple of hours, you know, she was, uh, just, uh, it, she was not comfortable. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, I can. I, it's funny. Um, the the seats that I find super, super comfortable, sometimes, uh, you know, other people will ride with me or my wife or, or you know, uh, whatever will they'll they'll get in immediately and they'll be like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. Whereas the same car, I'm like, oh, this fits like a glove. You know, it's, it's so it's it's interesting just to sort of see what that that lays out as. But anyway, carry on. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the thing that I was particularly interested in with the new E-Class, um, you may recall, you know, when the car launched last year, um, there was a little bit of controversy uh, with this one. Um, one of the first ads that they ran was focused on the drive pilot uh, system that they put in here 
which has, you know, a whole bunch of it's effectively almost a it's kind of a level two uh, automated driving system. Uh, and in the the first ad that they ran, they actually used the terminology autonomous driving. Um, and that ad got pulled within a couple of days after it first appeared. Uh, because it was really inappropriate to use that term because this is not an autonomous car, not even close. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and in fact, it's it's quite a bit less autonomous. Um, I would say it's less autonomous to some degree than than Tesla's autopilot, uh, maybe a little bit less autonomous, certainly less autonomous than the Cadillac Supercruise system that's uh, launching this year on the uh, CT6. Um, and unfortunately, my timing uh, did not work out great because they, um, there was a, the Cadillac did a little drive program, local drive program out of the Milford Proving Grounds with, this, with Super Cruise uh, on Wednesday while I was up north. I got the invitation last week, but I was already committed to going to the conference. So I wasn't able to participate. I'm hoping to get something set up uh, to drive that. Uh, in the next few weeks. Um, but that system is actually designed for hands-off operation. Um, Mercedes. Yeah, but drive- even that, yeah, I'm sorry, but e- even that Cadillac system is not, it's not automa- like autonomous, fully autonomous. No, and, and no, it's not. I, I've seen, um, I have to watch I, the road. Yeah. And, and I think it was Alex Roy actually was, was <laughs> at, at our old stomping grounds. Um, he, he took a uh, sort of uh, a swipe at, Autoblog, just because Autoblog used a, a headline that was like, you know, we, we tried the CT6 with a, you know, full-blown automation. It was Motor Trend, actually. Yeah. Uh, full-blown autonomous driving or full-blown whatever. And it was like, no, it's, it's not full-blown. Right. You know, be, you got to be careful. Let, let's, let's be absolutely clear. There is no car available for sale today from any manufacturer anywhere in the world that is autonomous. Not from Tesla, not from anybody else. There are varying levels of automation. But they are not autonomous. So, uh, like, what, what, why is this such a? Itch? I know we're getting a little sidetracked, but why is it such a, a stumbling block? We seem to come around to this on a regular basis, where people are making claims that are just, you know, they're hyperbole. Uh, I think the problem is that there are a lot of people writing about this stuff who really don't understand the technology, and you know, they they hear automation and they think autonomous. You know, and it's it's not the same thing. I mean, there's 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 gradations of it. You know, it's it's not a binary thing. Um, you know, you, there's a, a spectrum of automation from partially automated to more automated to eventually fully automated. You know, and the kinds of things that are being tested by a lot of companies, you know, including Waymo and uh, GM and, and Mercedes and many other companies, are you know, they're testing fully autonomous systems. But those are still a number of years away from production. You know, so what we're what we're getting is things that are progressively closer and closer to being autonomous. But what we have today, you know, is is not autonomous. Um, the Audi A8 that's coming this that's launching this fall that was just announced uh, gets a little bit closer with their um, their traffic jam pilot system, uh, which is designed to be, um, you know, hands off and, and eyes off the road uh, and, and feed off um, at speeds up to, I think about 38 miles an hour. Um, Super cruise is designed for highway driving. It's a hands-off system, but it's still eyes on the road. So you still have to be watching and be ready to take over if the system 
um, can't uh, can't handle this, the situation. The system that's in the Mercedes E-Class, at least here in, in the U.S. market, um, is slightly less uh, capable than that. It it is still a hands on the wheel system, uh, so you, you know you do have to keep your hands you know on the wheel and and you know um, there, there's a torque sensor in there that you know looks for the kinds of motions that are typical of what you get when when a human is holding the wheel and looks for the torque feedbacks you know so when it when you're going around a corner the system will try you know it it tries to to track the lane it does it actually does a pretty good job of lane centering so it's not just you know like a lot of the lane keeping assist systems that we've had up until now where the the car can kind of drift back and forth from one side to the other of the lane it actually does a pretty decent job of of lane centering um but you you know if you take your hands off the wheel for more than a few seconds uh it will start to to warn you to put your hands back on the wheel and the cadillac system does not do that it's designed to be, to let go of the wheel but you it's also has a driver monitoring system that's watching you to make sure that you're you're still watching the road and ready to take over if necessary um one of the things i did notice about the mercedes compared to most of the other systems i've tried out there um and and almost all of the systems one of you know one of the the complaints i have about all of almost all the various driver assist systems that are on the market today is the cameras are very inconsistent in their ability to actually see the lane markings and be able to do lane following or lane centering um you know so even when you have very clearly defined lane markings you know on 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 clear pavement um, a lot of times, you know, depending on how the sun is hitting it, you know, the, the reflectivity of the lane markings, um, the they just don't see it very well. Uh, the, 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 the cameras just aren't are not detecting the lanes. And so the system will not activate um, the Mercedes, um, you know, and, and most of those systems have mobile eye um, vision systems. Uh, so they're they're monovision systems with a single camera that's looking for the lane markings and looking for other stuff on the, you know, other vehicles on, on the road. The Mercedes system uses uh, a stereoscopic, a stereo vision system. So two cameras uh, supplied by AutoLeave and it's similar to the, um, the Subaru EyeSight system, uh, which is supplied by Hitachi. And it, it's also a two camera system. So like your eyes, you know, it, it can do some range finding and there's, you know, they're, they're not both um, facing the, you know, uh, straight ahead um or actually i guess they are facing straight ahead but there there's enough of a parallax in there uh because they're they're separated by a few inches to um help it a little bit with detection so it it, it seemed to do a much more reliable job of detecting lane markings even even in some places you know along the road where um you know there were old lane markings that had you know been severely faded and and worn away over the years you know there were definitely do for a repainting um, it, it still managed to track those quite well. So uh, the system did a good job at that, but like I say, you do have to keep your hands on the wheel. Um, the um, adaptive cruise control part of it, which uses the radar sensor worked well. One of the um, interesting things that I didn't realize at first, one of the functions that it has in there is something they call uh, speed limit pilot. Uh, and you can turn on and off some of these various functions uh, individually. Um, speed limit pilot, uh, 
that uses the cameras to uh, detect the, uh, to read the speed limit signs as you're driving along. And when speed limit pilot is turned on, uh, it will actually automatically adjust uh, the cruise control set speed based on the, um, the speed limit signs. So when you come into a construction zone, which we you know encountered a couple of construction zones on the way up, um, it you know it all of a sudden dropped the speed down automatically without even without me even having to do anything. That's nice. I mean, it, it is it is construction season out yeah. across the country, well, and <laughs> you know, and that's you know that that's something that would be be extremely handy you know in certain areas of of rural Ohio, for example, where. Uh, the local municipalities uh, seem to generate almost all of their revenue uh, from ticketing uh, people who don't live in that munici- municipality. Um, as my my good friend Bill Visnick from uh, SAE mm-hmm. will, will happily tell you, or not so happily. Uh, but um, uh, one thing I did notice uh, in the the uh, construction zones that I went through the other on uh, last Sunday. Uh, there were there were actually two sets of signs, you know. So the speed limit normally along the, the, the stretch of road uh, was seventy miles an hour, um, and then we saw the first speed limit sign said sixty miles an hour construction zone, and then you know uh, maybe fifty yards beyond that was a second sign that said forty five miles per hour when workers present, and there was no you know there were no there was nobody working at the time, uh, yeah. So. Uh, you know, the speed limit, you know, effectively was was uh, 60 through there. But, I, you know, <laughs> it didn't recognize that when workers present part, it only looked. Well, yeah, I mean, the roadside information systems are only programmed to look for like they're only designed to look for those numbers. Right. They're not they're not designed to read. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, well, so, I mean, you know, to a degree, they are designed to read. But and actually, that's that's something that uh, was an interesting uh, story that came up. Uh, I think it was in Wired this week. Um and somebody found a new way to hack, you know, some of these automated systems um, by strategically placing uh, some uh, pieces of white and black tape on a stop sign. It was able to fool the machine vision system into thinking that the stop sign was actually saying speed limit 45 miles an hour. Huh. And so, you know, a car, you know, with a vision, you know, using this machine vision system, instead of stopping at that stop sign, would blast right through at 45 miles an hour. Which, awesome. Yeah, which is not good. That's uh, the latest wave of vandalism. Like we used to try to make 25 mile an hour speed limit signs until like 85. Yeah. Now, but that's this, this one sounds like it's a little bit easier to actually uh, conduct some mayhem. That's kind of. Yeah, so you know the the speed limit the speed limit pilot uh, function is is actually pretty good, um, you know, and it you know it'll keep you to you know whatever the the local speed limit is if that's what you desire. So it does it automatically. Uh, it doesn't go back up, you know, once the speed limit increases again. It doesn't go back up automatically, so you have to do that part manually. Um, you know, so after I realized what was going on, I I just went in and turned that function off. Uh, yeah, but. Overall, you know, I was I was really impressed with the, the car, um, even on the 20 inch wheels. Uh, I posted a picture when the car was delivered last week. Um, you know, it's it's got 20 inch uh, alloys uh, with staggered uh, front and rear tire sizes. The fronts are, I think, at 245, 35 and the rears are 275, 30 series. So there's very little sidewall. Um, you know, there's not, you know, not really any compliance to speak of from the uh from the tire side walls but the suspension you know nonetheless did a did a good job you know of 
you know, keeping things reasonably comfortable. Yeah, well, it's got um, uh, the AMG car set, the air body control, right? Yeah. So yeah, this is um, pretty damn good. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty sophisticated suspension system. And uh, so it, it does a good job of of keeping things, you know, well under control and, and uh, manageable, you know, even for a, a four hour drive. Um, see what else? Um, yeah, you know, and even with that 400 horsepower engine, you know, it's still, you know, it averaged 24 miles per gallon over the trip, uh, which is not too shabby. So, I mean, the E-Class to me is is the pinnacle of of Mercedes. You know, everybody sort of looks at the S-Class as the the top of the range. And I guess it is, but that you expect that out of that car. The E-Class has to be built to cover such a wide range of, of prices. You know, it's their midsize car. It starts somewhat affordably and then pushes way past that. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's really the Mercedes, the the one Mercedes that has to be all things to all people. Uh, more so than the, the C-Class, which still has to cover kind of a wide array of bases. You know, the S-Class, the S-Class is in a little bit more rarefied air. So the E-Class to me is really always, you know, what I look to 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 take the temperature of the, the state of the art at Mercedes. And, and this latest E-Class is really impressive. Just And it, it's always been a pretty impressive car. The E-Class is that, you know, that's that's... The Mercedes that Mercedes does not want to screw up. <laughs> right. I mean, it's you know it's their highest volume car model. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have to check. I'm not. I don't know that. It, I think. It, I don't think it's their highest volume. No, the highest volume. That's probably the yeah. GLE now. Um, but yeah, uh, it's you know it's definitely their highest volume car car line uh, at least here in the U.S. And you know in Europe, you know when you, if you go to Germany, you know. As you said, you know, the E-Class has to cover a, a huge range of applications. You know, I mean, the, the E-Class uh, is the, the Crown Vic of right. the German market. Man, I wish my Crown Vic were an E-Class. <laughs> it has been for many years. I mean, you know, taxi cabs, you know, it's the, it's the dominant taxi cab platform uh, in Germany. You yeah. Know, they're, they're everywhere. Well, and because of that, it has to be, you know, the underlying engineering, the just the basics of the car have to be really sound and really uh, durable. And, um, you know, you can add luxury and performance and comfort on top of that, but it has to be a really good starting point. Um, and, you know, by all by all accounts, this this new E-Class is um, the how's the nine speed transmission in that like and the engine the, the the engine to me looks you see pictures of it it's just like it's this big block of of components it's yeah. just like this one big chunk that it's it's it looks like a jet engine the way everything is sort of just stuffed in there yeah the you know the engine's great um and you know it's got uh selectable drive modes so you, you know there's a comfort mode um nor, you know uh sport sport plus um and um so, you know, in comfort mode, you know, it actually feels slightly sluggish off the line. You know, you've got slower throttle response. You know, the uh, transmission is not quite as aggressive, at least through the first couple of gears. Um, if you put it in sport or sport plus mode, you know, then it, it takes off much more aggressively, um, you know, and it feels mo much more like a sports sedan, um, you know, for, for purposes of, you know, a long road trip. I, you know, on the road, I kept it in comfort mode most of the time. Um, you know, also to get the, um, softer damping rates, uh, you know, especially, you know, through, uh, through some of the rougher roads, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the nine speed, you know, you can, you can definitely feel it when it shifts, you know, it's not a, 
it's not a completely it doesn't have that seamless feel that you have you know from a uh, a typical mercedes-benz automatic transmission um it's you know it, it's definitely the, the one that's in that's used in here and in the e63 definitely well actually the e63 has a, a multi-clutch transmission so it's got a different transmission again from what's in this one and this this is a nine speed too so some of the problems that i've seen with nine speeds have been like the chrysler nine speed gets very, very confused mm-hmm. uh and the it, the um, the one that Land Rover is using, I think, is is pretty much that same transmission with different programming. Uh, that one's a little better, but yeah, overall, like nine speeds, like is that the is that good here, or is that kind of like we you now it's the upper limit of of what we should be doing with automatics and too many ratios, too much too much of a spread for for this, or does it work just fine? It it works it works fine in this in this application. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't think it's it's a problem here. Yeah, and the the thing to keep in mind, you know, is this is, uh, you know, in this application, you know, this is a car with a, a much higher top speed, and so you know the the spacing between the gears uh, is not as tight as what it, it would be, you know, in the uh, the Chrysler applications or the Land Rover. That's uh, true. You know, so you've got a, a wider spread of, of ratios from first through ninth. Uh, and so it, it's going to tend, it, it doesn't, it's not going to do quite as much shifting uh, you know, or bouncing around between ratios as, as those applications would. Uh, yeah. Well, and I guess there's a lot of torque too, so it doesn't really yeah. need to, yeah, it doesn't need to work as hard. Exactly. You know, and then, you know, what we're seeing now, you know, I haven't, haven't driven one yet, but uh, you know, you've got 10 speeds coming from uh, a variety of manufacturers, including GM and Ford. Uh, you know, they've launched their 10 speed automatic. Uh, but again, those are in, in larger applications. Although um, Honda, the new Honda Odyssey uh, has a 10 speed automatic as well available. So we'll see, uh, we'll see what that one's like. Yeah. I'm sure overall, the E43 uh, was was a, a really uh, it's a, it probably hit the mark, it probably was what you expected it to be. Uh, so, what was the thing that stood out the most? Uh, you know, the, uh, obviously, you know, I spent a lot of time sitting in this car over the last week. Uh, you know, driving you know several hundred miles to northern Michigan and back. Uh, you know, the I thought the interior was overall a great place to spend time. The um, the uh, dashboard layout is kind of interesting. Um, it's got two LCD panels, one for the cluster right in front of the driver and then a second LCD display in the middle. But um, there's a, a single sheet of glass that spans across the entire thing. So when it's off, all you see is this one black sheet of glass spanning from the door panel across to the, the middle of the car, across the top of the dashboard. Um, yeah. And then when you turn it on the, the two light up and you see these, these, the individual displays underneath there, um, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, usability of a lot of the functions, um, the, the current interface that uh, Mercedes has in there, you know, and, and it's, um, similar to what's in the, uh, in some of the other models now, uh, is much improved over what they've had in the past. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of functionality buried in there. You know, I mean, there's just so many features in this car. You know, it's it would be impossible to to do otherwise. You know, so, for example, the seats, you know, I mentioned the seats earlier, you know, some of the basic adjustments for the seats like, you know, forward and back and, and um, you know, rear seat back angle um, and uh, the extensions, you know, for the thigh supports, things like that. 
are, you know, those are mounted, those are with physical controls, you know, on the door, uh, you know, and they're shaped like the seats, you know, so you can kind of see what you're doing, but they, um, you know, then things like the, the side bolster adjustments and the massaging seats and, um, a lot, you know, a lot of the other functionality is buried in the menus. So you've, you've got to use the central controller. Um, and, and like some of the other recent Mercedes I've driven, you know, it's got a multimodal controller system. So you've got a, a rotary control knob, like an iDrive style, but then hanging over that is a, a touch controller that, uh you know, you can for when you're entering stuff into the uh, navigation system, you can write the letters on there and, and do various things. I just turn that off because I actually find that <laughs> in the Mercedes, I find that more annoying to use than than helpful. I find the rotary controller to be uh, easier to use. Uh, I can use it more quickly uh, and get to what I want. Um, it does have Android Auto and Apple CarPlay support. And, you know, like the Audi A4 that I drove some months ago you know there's no there's no touch screen uh so you're using the rotary controller to navigate through there and it, it actually works reasonably well it's not it's not quite as um it, you know the the android auto and and carplay are both clearly designed for a touch interface um so it's it's a little bit clunkier to um to navigate you know to spin the wheel and navigate through the various targets uh in that interface but once you get used to it, it's fine. Um, what else? Yeah, it kind of it's so, it sounds like the old days of like navigating Windows uh, when you yeah. didn't have a mouse. You know, you could yeah, use like, exactly. the, the option and the arrow use keys the, to move yeah, around. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you know, I think it, it's a you know the the E class you know and Mercedes Benz cars in general I think are really great for long road trips. Um, you know, they're they're designed you know they're, they're designed for the autobahn. You know, for uh, long, you know, um, long high speed commutes. Um, and obviously I didn't go quite that fast, uh, driving through Northern Michigan, but, um, you know, it's definitely a car that, you know, that is capable and, and great for that sort of trip. Yeah. As well. It should be for $90,000. Oh, Oh, really? Hey, it's that much. It's a, it's a German car, a German luxury car. So, you know, as soon as you start ticking off a few options on the uh, the list, you know the price starts to elevate really fast from the uh, fifty three thousand or fifty four thousand dollar base price oh. of an E three hundred. Wow! I mean, I, I, it's beautiful. Uh, it, yeah, it's a I, freaking car. I yeah, they've really cleaned up the design of the E class. It's funny because it, it just looks like a larger C class, but the C class looks so great. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's just I really love the way they've des- they've uh, evolved their design language, but. Yeah, Man. actually compared to the last generation E-Class that I drove a couple of years ago. Yeah, which was also a great car, but kind of Baroque, right? Yeah, it, it had a much boxier style to it than this one does. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, wow. Nine, I'm just still just, it took my breath away. Hang on, I got to recover. I just think, yeah, 90,000, <laughs> and this is the mid-level one. Yeah. The E63, and, you know, you're easily up, you know, well over 100 grand just to start. Well, it has, that one has an S in the name, right? It's the E63 AMG S or AMG E63 S. Or the S stands no. for silly, which oh, is the amount of okay, money. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, right. it, you're, it is E63 S. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is, that's like the expletive you say <laughs> when you look at the price. I don't know. Uh, well, I was driving the uh, the Mazda Miata RF, which uh, was a lot less expensive. Um. 
no less enjoyable, but uh, certainly uh, not quite the long-legged road trip car that the uh, the Mercedes is. Yeah, well, it's not meant to be though. It's, it's, no, it's 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 meant for you know trips you know where the the road has a lot of curves. I will uh, yes, and it's it's it, this car. It's, uh, this is actually you know there are cars where the, we drive as journalists and we're like oh I'd, I'd buy that. Well yeah of course it's easy to say crap like that when you're not actually buying it. Um, this is one of those cars that I just I've always liked the Miata. I've always wanted a Miata coupe. Uh, that was sort of the the thing that kept me from being a, a real kind of fanatic about the Miata was like, it's always going to just be a convertible. Uh, and I, I'm not a huge convert. Like I appreciate convertibles, but I'm not, not going to buy one. I don't think ever. Um, so the RF is a target and it's, it's close enough now to my ideal of a, uh, Miata coupe, you know, it was just like kind of like a modern day MGB GT, um, that I would seriously consider it. And the thing that I love about it is that I actually could consider it because it's attainable price wise. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't really give up anything for that. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel like a a cheaply made car, um, w- w- which is which is, is impressive, which is typical of modern Mazdas as well. I mean, it's consistent with, you know, with the rest of the Mazda lineup. They they all have a, a surprisingly premium feel to them. Yeah. And, and it's it's equally impressive because it's 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 a different kind of car than something like a Mustang or a Camaro. But those cars, you can you can still see some of the the built to a price uh, aspect of them. That's less so with the Miata. You you have to look for it a little bit more. I mean, this car is it's thirty two thousand dollars because I had, had the uh, Grand Sport model. Um, and so it has the uh, you know, it has a retract power of retractable hardtop. And that's not something that you like just the amount of engineering in it. Like the, it, it impresses me that it's, it's still that kind of that affordable, uh, you know, it, like a, a Mustang convertible or a, a Camaro convertible with the power top is going to be probably a little bit more expensive. Um, you Overall, like just the whole package of the Miata is fantastic. I mean, it's always been good, but it's really, really good this time around. Um, yeah, it, it is, you know, and one of the one of the interesting things, you know, about the way they've done um, the top, you know, when when that um, like the butcher, the the bar, you know, the the but, the buttress buttresses and the the top bar lift up and away, and then the top folds down, and the rear glass goes with it. Yeah. So um, you know, and then when uh, part of that whole piece that that piece that lifts up and back as the top goes down and then when it comes back there's a clear plastic wind blocker in there but there's still an opening in there so you still have some airflow through there so it you know it's not it's not like a targa you know in the traditional um like uh Porsche 911 targa or you know or even a Corvette type of sense you know where the back is enclosed where all all that goes away is the top panel you know, it's 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 a little bit closer to, you know, a convertible, uh, but with a with a rigid top. Um, you know, I personally, I, I think I still prefer the approach they did on the last generation uh, Miata with the retractable hardtop where the, the hardtop, you know, shape mirrored the um, the shape of the soft top. And it, yeah. it folded down. And so when it folded down, it was completely out of the way. And you didn't have that that rollover bar, basically, or the buttresses. Um, you know, but I think they wanted to differentiate this one a little more and make it look 
more like a, a Mazda, like a Miata coupe, which is something they've never, never done in production. They've done a couple of concepts over the last 25 years, but they've never done a production one before. And this is the closest they've gotten to that. Yeah. And it, honestly, it gives them an, it's almost like another Miata model in that sense. You know, it gets, it gets people talking. It gets folks like me who, who say like, yeah, I, I like the Miata. I've always liked the Miata, but I really wish they made a coupe. Well, this is the closest thing you're probably ever going to get to a coupe Miata. Uh, and it works really well because when you put that top down, you know, you don't have the, if you, if you didn't have that airflow, like you were talking about, you, it would get all get trapped in the, in, in the back and you, you get all this weird buffeting and it would, it would sort of thrum, you know, the, the car would re- resonate. Uh, this doesn't do that. It, it actually feels like you're in a convertible with, with the, the top down, you know, the top stowed. Uh, so it's a really enjoyable car. It's great to drive. All the controls are like, they seriously know what the hell they're doing when they tune this car. Um, you know, it's, it's above sort of reproach in that sense. Uh, and even with 155 horsepower, 140, you know, pound feet of torque, you'd think that it's a little bit light on power. It's not like it's certainly the chassis could handle more power. Uh, and I think any seen with the Fiat 124. Yeah. And I mean, I think any well-designed chassis is, is like that. It's the same thing that you say about, you know, the FT86, right? The, the Subaru BRZ and the, the, the Toyota, um, whatever, uh, the not Toyota 86. Yeah. Uh, I forgot what they named it. It, it, was, the, <laughs> it was the Scion FRS. Before. I was going to say the Toyota FRS, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's another car where it's modestly powered, but, it, I think it's set up so well to to handle and, and to really just just be a great all around handling chassis that it can, by its very nature, handle more horsepower than it has. Um, you know, it's it's not but it's not hairy. And that's that's the great thing about the Miata. You can use all of the performance virtually. I don't want to say virtually all the time, but you can use all of the performance most of the time. You, you can you can approach its limits much more readily in the real world without driving at speeds that are likely to get you into into trouble yeah and i you know i I almost wish i had the club which is a little bit cheaper it starts about a thousand dollars cheaper and it has uh bilstein shock absorbers and and um it's a little less luxury than the the grand touring model but you know uh i didn't i didn't hate the Honda infotainment, I mean, the Mazda infotainment, which isn't the best, you know, it's just pretty good. The control knob is, is all right. But the way they lock you out of stuff uh, at almost any time other than a dead stop was kind of frustrating um, for the, the infotainment. Uh, and that's really about the biggest gripe I can I can make. You know, there's really there's not a whole lot of uh, complication to this car, which I don't think is supposed to be complicated. So they've, they've really hit the mark. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it doesn't, there's not a whole lot of technology in this thing. You know, there's no, you know, no lane keeping systems or anything like that. You, you get a blind spot warning system. Um, and, uh, I think forward collision warning and that's about it. Uh, yeah, it has, um, it does have the, like the lane warning, but it, I, I shut that off. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's it's the it's sort of a perfectly realized car. And what was really funny to me was the amount of attention from the amount of male attention I got 
<laughs> just just dudes notice this car and like uh a couple guys at work were like you have an rf this week i saw it in the parking lot and like they peek out at it at certain times they're like hey can we go to lunch and i'm just like yeah sure man i'll tell you i'll take you for a ride whatever and they're asking questions it's about great it great proportions yeah it really does uh th- there's a couple of angles where it looks a little bit oddly hunched but really overall i think they they did a really nice job sort of fitting this this roof line in with the the body and seeing it in the rf in the i have like a gunmetal gray color there are there are details in the the sheet metal that don't really show up uh all that readily like there's there's this very subtle line that goes across the the door skin you know diagonally from like uh about the middle of the the door skin down on the bottom up and across just below the door handle and then it it merges into the rear quarter panel and and up it's a, it's like a haunch and it's, it's just it's very subtle and you, you don't notice it until you see the car in the metal and you really look at it and then then that that will stand out uh there's this very yeah, you I, can you can see that in some of the photos in the review that i posted because i had an rf a couple of weeks ago um, that we talked about previously with the reviews I posted a uh, review I posted on Forbes. You can, you can really see those, those contours in the sheet metal that aren't necessarily readily visible all the time. Yeah, I was, um, it's one of those things that you see it and it delights you. Right. And I was, I was, uh, impressed by that, how they've, they've tucked some detailing into it. So it doesn't, it's not a bland car. Um, it, but it's a, still a simple shape. Uh, there's, there's a, a nice sort of, fine uh high point on both of the front uh fenders that, that sort of traces the arc of the uh the the hood cut line um and that's another subtle thing and that that's kind of entertaining to see from the the driver's seat and you know in a practical concern too it has a pretty decent sized trunk for what it is uh you know understand you're not going to do like two weeks worth of grocery shopping <laughs> with it but i you know i'm still impressed that that it has a, a usable trunk um and it gets 37 miles to the gallon yeah you can't complain about that like that's awesome for this car so uh i didn't expect to come away with anything other than a ringing endorsement of the the rf but now i've been you know like like building my ideal rf on the website and stuff so uh, <laughs> it's it's one of those cars uh yeah it's it's an awesome car i i loved it in fact i'm getting another one next week uh getting a grand sport i had the club before and i'm getting a grand sport this this coming week oh good we can compare notes grand, uh, grand touring it, i mean yeah i know it's i always forget like what whatever it's the grand something or other yeah um so that's good and you can compare it to your your first generation uh that's one of the things that uh one of the guys i took to lunch in it he he had had a couple of first generation Miatas and he was, you know, very interested in how it compares. He's like, you know, it, it still feels very much like that car. It has the same kind of burbly exhaust note. It, it just dynamically, it, it you know, sort of, you make that one to two shift and then it sort of squats down a little bit and it just does all the things that the Miata has always done. And I was like, well, yeah, that's, I mean, they're not going to mess that up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the, the key, the key difference, you know, between um, the first generation car, you know, and this one, uh, because you know this one is actually um, the convertible, you know, the, the regular, the soft top version is actually like within about 30 pounds of the weight of the original. And the RF is, it's about a hundred pounds more than, than the, uh, the soft top or the original. 
<clears throat> and the the key difference, I think, in the way they feel is the new one just feels so much more solid. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, that's just a, a function of, you know, modern uh, materials and construction techniques. Uh, you know, the structure is just much more rigid than the original. You know, not not that the original was, you know, was particularly flexible, you know, like. Uh, like some cars, like the the Mercury Capri, which came out at the same time as the Miata, and was based on some of the same hardware, which yes. blows my mind. Yeah, but it was you know it it was based on the the front wheel drive uh, Mazda Protege of the time, and some of those bits ended up in the Miata, but the you know the the Capri turned around yeah. was front wheel drive. But yeah. the same engine, the same one point six liter engine, the same engine, and so the Protege, like even was it like the 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 rear differential was obviously from from something else or developed directly for the that first generation Miata, but like the rear hubs and stuff were all they were all like three two three or protege pieces, sort of. Uh, or may, maybe I'm maybe I'm stretching it and I don't fully understand, but it was it was an impressive bit of like sort of here's the bucket of parts and here's two different things you can do with it. Right, <laughs> like, and, and, and Mazda, Mazda did it right, and you know that's why the the, the Miata is still around today, and you know they, they've sold they recently you know top. 1 million sales, total sales of the Miata since it launched. Um, and, you know, it's because they, they, they have stuck true to the original formula, yeah. you know, of a very simple, basic uh, two seat rear wheel drive sports car. Uh, you know, but like I said, you know, they've they've steadily improved it in the ways that are really important. Um, you know, we were, you know, whereas my car feels, you know, I described it as almost delicate by comparison, yeah. even though yeah. it's the same weight. Yeah, you know, um, so it's it's quite interesting to to see the difference between. Well, yeah, I mean, the Miata was designed. When did they start that? Like eighty yeah, seven, uh, somewhere around there. So I mean, it was it was for the time, and you know that was one of the questions that I got asked too was you know, how much more rigid does the RF feel? And it's like I you know what I'd have to drive the the regular soft top and the RF back to back to feel any to, to give you any sort of determination. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, at least compared to um, I haven't. It's been a while since I drove the soft top Miata, but compared yeah. to the the one twenty four, the Fiat one twenty four, which is the same structure, um, there's not there's not really a notable uh, difference, uh, at least yeah. with, the, with the top down. Well, good. That's what I said. I was like, you know, they honestly neither feel flimsy. They they have some cowl shake because they're they're convertibles, but they're not a they're not a, a flimsy feeling car. They feel they feel pretty solid. There's, they're one of the few convertibles that 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 pulls it off to that level. You know. Um, and, and I think the, the, the small size, you know, the short wheelbase, you know, so, you know, there's not a lot of extra, you know, you're not, you don't have a lot of cantilevered forces being fed into this thing. So that helps, uh, you know, yeah. so relatively small doors and short wheelbase helps to, to, to make it feel a little more solid. Yeah. And Tim, I want to hear about you, how you get really motivated and you find a Capri XR2 and take the turbo setup and put it on yours. Because all those pieces fit because it's the same engine. Yeah. Uh, Just, I mean, you know, there, there's, there's <laughs> lots of there's lots of turbo bits that you can find, you know, aftermarket stuff uh, to yeah. fit onto uh, Miatas. Uh, you know, someday probably I might get yeah. around to that. <laughs> or you could just leave it alone because uh, it's I fun think, on its own. I think I think I'm more inclined to, to do that because, you know, then I can really, you know, thrash it at its limits. You know, uh, you know, the more the more power. I mean, I, I like the extra power you know i when i drove the fiat version i really liked um the extra torque that it offered but i can certainly live without it i'm quite quite content with what i have in this one 
Yeah, I'll agree with that. It's a fun car. I, I was looking for excuses to drive it. So, yeah, um, but, you know, you know, when when you start doing that kind of stuff, like they've they've really like they've nailed it with the yeah. car. So, um, and, well, with that in mind, you know, the other great thing about a, a um, the especially the first generation Miata, uh, because it's it's so low that, you know, the belt line is is a couple inches lower than on the, the current generation. Um, you know, if you have a Corgi, you know, they can sit on the front, sit on the front passenger seat, and they can look out the front windshield. They can see out much, much more comfortably. You know, they don't have to get step up onto the, the armrest or anything to see you, the car. You've got a your dog's a corgi, one of those like yeah. lowrider dogs. Yep. <laughs> went to the farmer's market this morning, and you know, put her in the the front passenger seat, and she was she was just happy as a clam. Looking, that's awesome. Looking around, sniffing everything. See, I I put my kids in the car, but. Uh, the dog is probably a better travel companion. Well, my kids so, are gone, so yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> uh, I still need to, I still need to take my wife out in it, because um, I was like, we we should we should stash the kids at your mom's or something, and just go take off, take you know, like get lunch somewhere, because it's that kind of car, you know. There there are some where you know you get them in there, like yeah, okay, shrug, but then you get you get some cars like this one, it's like you, let's let's make a special occasion to just like actually go enjoy ourselves for a little while, um, or just go out and drive for no no reason at all. Yeah. And that's that's the nice thing about having a car that has no navigation system. It doesn't matter where you're going. Just just go somewhere. Yeah. Well, we've solved everybody's marital problems now. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we should, we can move on. Uh, so this week was the the car management briefing seminars like we talked about at the beginning of the show. And, uh, you know, one of the the guys from Ward's Auto decided to take his Bolt EV or their the Ward's Auto Bolt EV uh, up to Traverse City uh, from Detroit. Uh, and so, you know, just seeing how it would do, uh, it's about a 240-mile trip, and the Bolt has about 240 miles of range. So kind of it was an interesting write-up uh, that they did about that kind of odyssey of living with an EV in a sort of modern circumstance. You know, everybody needs to travel for business from time to time. This is one of those opportunities to, to, to really test this, this car out, uh, in, in its just sort of like, you know, intended role. Yeah. So, uh, my friend, Bob Gritzinger, who's a writer at, at Ward's auto world. Um, he took uh, a Chevy bolt, uh, up to, uh, Traverse city, uh, which is about a 220 mile drive from his home in, uh, in Lake Orion, which is uh, not far from the plant where the bolt is built. And, uh, you know, before deciding to, to take the bolt uh, for this, for this trip, uh, you know, he checked, you know, to make sure that there was some place where he could plug it in to charge it while we're in Traverse city and that there were places to charge along the way if needed. And, um, you know, everything appeared hunky dory. Okay, cool. You know, turns out, you know, the, the, uh, Grand Traverse uh, Resort and, and Spa, where the conference was, they've got uh, three um, Tesla uh, destination chargers there, and, and two other um, standard SAE combo chargers. Um, and so we figured, okay, it's good to go. Drive it up there, no problem at all. Um, along the way, um, he decided, you know, uh, he had the indi- the gauge was showing that he had plenty of range to make it to Traverse city, but he figured I'm going to stop and take a break anyway. Uh, so he stopped, uh, used the, the plug share app, which is an app you can, uh, where, you know, if you've got an EV charger, um, that you want to make available to other people, you can post it on plug share and, you know, people can, you know, um, find, you know, find your charger on the, on the map and, um, you know, just come plug in their car for a while. 
So he stopped, uh, he and his wife stopped in uh, Grayling, Michigan, which is about 60 miles or so from Traverse City. Uh, and they, uh, this Dairy Queen there had a, char- a level two charger, 240 volt charger out back. And so he plugged in there and they stopped and had a cup of coffee and sat around for about an hour and then continued on their way and arrived in Traverse City with, you know, more than enough range, at least a, another 60 or 70 miles of range left um, by the time they got there. Went to plug it in and you you arrived on Sunday and the conference ended on Thursday. Went to plug it into one of the, uh, the 220 volt uh, chargers, two chargers that were available. Um, One was turns out to not been functioning at all. And the other one was only sort of kind of functioning. Um, And uh, he spent about an hour on the phone with the company that uh, owns and operates the chargers. It was uh, a company based in Oregon uh, and turned out that this particular charger, you know, they, they operate a network of charging stations around the country. turns out this particular one in Traverse city, which is, you know, the, the Northern end of the Michigan's lower peninsula was the only one they had in Michigan. And they didn't have anybody who could come out and, and check on why it wasn't working or <laughs> couldn't figure out what was going on or why, it you know, why it wouldn't charge. Um, and, Bob finally gave up, found uh, nearby. There was actually uh, a regular 110 volt outlet uh, on the ground. It was it was a utility outlet that they used for plugging in um, Christmas lights and stuff when they set those up in the, you know, the, the holiday season. And uh, so he got the extension cord out and plugged into that. You know, so that thing was just trickling along. Yeah, was it charged by the time he had to leave yep. two days later? <laughs> yeah, he, he, he got it all charged up by the time he left on Thursday. Um, and he figured, okay, on the way back, um, he, you know, was checking, you know, the locations of chargers, um, and there were two, um, consumers energy consumers energy is one of the two big utilities here in Michigan. The other one's DTE. And, you know, so they supply, they're both an electric and natural gas uh, supplier and two of their offices, um, along the, the route coming back from Traverse city. Uh, were listed as having charge point chargers. Um, you know, one was in uh, like West Branch, and I forget where the other one was. Doesn't you know? At any rate, he stopped at both of those, both at both uh, utility outlets. The chargers were non-functional. Hmm. And you know, I mean, if you think. If you you would expect that if there's any place where there's going to be functional chargers, it's going to be at the electric utility, right? I mean, I've learned to always expect uh, the worst. Yeah. <laughs> so like plan, plan for the worst and um, hope for the best. Right. Yeah. So two two more non-functional charging stations um, at you know one of the two big electric utilities here in the state. And so he finally gave up and said, screw it, and just went for it and decided to try and make it home. And, you know, drove about 60, 65 miles an hour, you know, the whole way. Um, And he managed to make it back to his home with about 20 miles to spare. So and and that's with a roof rack mounted on the car, uh, which was adding extra drag. So, you know, that gives you an idea of how how efficient this car really is. Uh, even, you know, at highway, you know, highway driving. So he wasn't doing you know a lot of stop and go driving where you're going to get any regen. It was just straight through driving. 
and you still managed to make it, you know, over 220 miles. But the, what this really says is I think, you know, for any car, make, you know, if car makers besides Tesla really want to succeed in selling EVs, they've got to make this stuff more convenient. You know, the, the one thing that, uh, you know, that the Tesla, I think that Tesla has really done right um, is their supercharger network and the way that they've distributed the superchargers. Because if you look at, you know, where charging stations are, there's a, a website run by the Department of Energy called the Alternative Fuels Data Center. And you can go on there, you know, and you can find uh, charging stations and refueling stations for all the different kinds of fuel. So you can find all the E85 stations and CNG stations and, and everything else, propane stations, you know, so whatever, whatever your car runs on, you can find a map of all the, the locations where you can get it fueled up. and if you look at that map, you know, if you look for, you know, DC fast charging stations like superchargers, there's actually about 1100 DC fast charging stations that are not superchargers in the U.S. You know, so these are, you know, the Chatamo chargers, which is the Japanese standard or the SAE combo uh, car, uh, chargers. And uh, the problem is the vast majority of them are concentrated on the east and west coast, and there's relatively few of them in the middle of the country so or in rural areas. And so if you want to do you know, long distance drives with an EV, you're kind of out of luck unless you have a Tesla, because what Tesla has done is they've got about I think they're getting close to 700 stations now, supercharger stations, but they're nice and evenly spread across the entire country, particularly in the middle of the country. You know, so you're never more than a, along most of the major routes, you're never more than a couple hundred miles from a charging station. And so you should be able to go almost anywhere in the country at using the supercharger stations. And so, you know, companies like ChargePoint and EVgo and Blink that operate these charging networks, they really need to start taking a look at putting more stations, you know, in these rural areas, you know, in between the cities, you know, to, to help out people that actually want to go somewhere um, with an electric vehicle. Yeah. Well, I mean, the cities were sort of the early adopters and, and the coasts. I mean, I see a lot of uh, Tesla's in the Boston Metro area. Um, but, you know, somebody asked me the other day, like, what's the charging situation like up here? And I, I honestly, I don't know what the, the infrastructure is like uh, other than, you know, Tesla has been very smart actually about their, their supercharger network because they, they seem to understand the cart horse problem, right? Like you've got, you've got an electric car. That's great. How are you going to support the users of it uh, when they, when they do need to use it to go somewhere? Cause uh, you know, that's, that's one of the big issues that we've talked about uh, for the last like 10 years, even, you know, uh, with plugins to a certain degree, plug-in hybrids is the range anxiety. And that's why cars like that exist with, with essentially two power sources, because there, there are people who, who need to be able to go where they need to go and not run out of juice. So, um, you know, right now plugins are the solution for that. Uh, I, I do, I do think we're at a kind of a, an inflection point, uh, like you say, where, EVs are, are pretty viable, but the charging network to support that isn't. Uh, and, you know, across the vast middle of the nation, it's it's really it really isn't. And if they get that sorted out, I think you'll be able to push the adoption of, of EVs a lot more, especially as the price drops. I mean, we had the, the Tesla Model 3 uh, 
to kind of the the launch or pseudo launch. I'm not I'm not sure how much of that of a launch that is yet. Yeah, but. I mean that was, <laughs> was basically handing over some pilot production cars right. to to 30 employees because all all of the people that got those 30 cars were all Tesla employees. Right. So um, <laughs> you know, and, and granted, you know they apparently had to pay for them. I mean, typically, you know, the, what most car makers do when they're starting to ramp up production of a new model. Yeah, is the first couple hundred cars, um, you know, they, they, over the course of several months, you know, they build uh, pilot production cars at a low, you know, low speed as they get all the kinks sorted out in the production process. And they take those cars that are, you know, um, nominally production spec, you know, they may have some some continuing changes. Usually it's just mostly just software updates um, between then and, and full, you know, on sale date. But, you know, they'll put those cars into the hands of employees to drive for several months and, you know, look for those final showstopper bugs and and get those fixed before they start sending cars to dealers. Um, In this case here, you know, what Tesla has done is they have at least nominally sold these cars to employees. You know, um, Tesla's not saying, you know, if they paid paid full retail price for them or not, Um, but they did say that the employees did not, you know, because I I checked with with. uh, a contact at Tesla and she said they did not uh, they did not give the cars to the employees. They did, you know, they, they did pay for them, but how much we they paid, we don't know. Well, it's uh, the Tesla damn the torpedoes kind of <laughs> you know, approach, right? Like we're just going to do it. Um, and I, like, that's, that's great. But if you, if you can't charge the car and like level full deployment or vast deployment of level three DC fast chargers is going to be great um if and when it happens uh i kind of hope that one of the big oil companies gets this act together and goes hey we have all these stations across the country maybe we should put some charging stuff in there like well it's funny you know um the there's a there's a uh, a level three dc fast charging station in ann arbor on the south side of ann arbor not too not too far from where i am um it's actually located at a shell station um and uh, so, you know, ne- adjacent to the gas pumps, there's a there's a there's a DC fast charging station. Yeah, I mean, it's there's so much friction and like the, the 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 amount of sort of like being a pioneer, like he he had to to take his bolt to this conference. He had to check that the there were locations. Then he had to check that there were backup locations using an app. And then he had to call ahead and make sure that those chargers actually worked. And then when he got there, he found out the chargers didn't actually work. Uh, like that—that's like taking the Oregon Trail to a certain degree. Like right, and and that's that's one of the things that has you know pre- prevented people from actually um, going ahead and buying EVs. You know, is the hassle. You know, because you you do you know as early adopters, you do have to adjust your lifestyle. You know, you got to make sure that an EV will fit your lifestyle and be willing to live with some of those compromises. And, you know, those compromises are starting to fall away. You know, now as you get more affordable, long range EVs. Um, so certainly for around town driving, you know, and, and for most commuting, you know, the, the Bolt's range is more than adequate at 240 miles. Um, but it's it's when you get into longer trips that now it, 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 that's still a problem. It's still not the ideal car for those kind of trips. Yeah. And I mean, is it the, the thing about it is we really are switching a fuel type and 
so I, I expect that this is going to take a little while, but I really do hope within the next five years we, we get some of this sorted out. EVs are so affordable now. You can buy a used leaf for like $10,000. Yeah. Uh, so if we can figure out how to make it easier to charge them, and it doesn't seem like it should be that difficult, uh, we can drive some more more adoption. Well, hopefully one of the one of the solutions to this will be um, actually the Volkswagen diesel gate situation, because part of the settlement that uh, Volkswagen made with EPA and CARB is they're putting $2 billion into uh, deploying charging infrastructure for EVs, uh, $800 million in California and another $1.2 billion nationally. And most of that is supposed to go towards um, setting up uh, more DC fast charging uh, around the country. Yeah. So it'll get there um, eventually. Right. Uh, so the other thing to come from this this conference that we wanted to touch on also sort of centers around EVs. Um, but uh, Robert Davis from uh, Mazda gave a, uh, a presentation. Um, and you will recall that Mazda has no EVs or uh, hybrids in its lineup. It's focused exclusively on internal combustion um they they do have diesel but it's not here yet and uh it will be eventually he said but uh what he's his point was trying to that he was trying to make was that the the death of the internal combustion engine is kind of greatly overrated or greatly exaggerated um and the reason why evs and, and hybrids have climbed in terms of sales is that they've essentially been mandated by tax cuts if you take away the tax cuts fewer people are going to be interested um and that uh you know consider too that the evs are not zero emissions they his his line was their remote emissions which is a really good sort of really thoughtful way to to look at that uh so it sounds like mazda is is kind of doubling down on um internal combustion and and not not really working to develop any kind of other alternative to that. Well, that's that's not entirely accurate. Um, you know, I mean, I I spoke with uh, with Robert earlier this year at the Chicago Auto Show, um, and they are developing electrified powertrains, um, and that includes both EVs and and hybrids. Uh, and um, but you know, it's not their it's not their primary focus. Uh, their primary focus is really. It has been for a long time, uh, you know, is making more and more efficient, uh, do, doing the fundamental engineering to make their, their vehicles more efficient uh, as they are. So, you know, stronger, lighter structures um, and then more efficient engines and transmissions. So their whole sky active strategy with with their engines and transmissions, you know, they've their, uh the the Mazda lineup, you know, has the. Uh, has for the last several years had the highest overall corporate average fuel economy. Of course, you know, granted they're not a full line manufacturer, so they don't have any big trucks. You know, the biggest thing they have is the CX nine. But still, you know, they're uh, in, in their segments, excuse me, their, their vehicles are all, you know, particularly efficient compared to the competition uh, even without electrification. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when, uh, when Robert spoke on uh, Wednesday morning, he came up right after Ben Schlim, who is, um, the, uh, he's, uh, uh, powertrain, uh, executive program manager at Toyota North America. And, 
Ben was also talking about um, powertrains and in particular, um, you know, what uh, Toyota is doing with their uh, dynamic force engine, uh, which is their new engine architecture uh, that's debuting on the Camry. Uh, You know, so it's it's a totally revamped version of the 2.5 liter four cylinder that they've used in many of their vehicles for for a number of years. They've now got it up to uh, in, in the Camry. It's now up to 41 percent thermodynamic efficiency, which is remarkable for a gasoline. Yeah, I mean, that's that's diesel efficiency. Back back in the day, it was always sort of touted as, you know, the diesels are 40 percent efficient and gasoline engines are roughly 20. Uh, yeah, it was closer to about 20 between 25 and 30. But to get a gas engine up to 40 percent and more efficiency is really impressive. Um, and, you know, uh, Mazda is getting into the same range and, and their next generation of engines that are going to be launching um, in uh, 2018 uh, are expected to approach uh, are expected to get that same kind of efficiency out of those uh, engines. You know, so he said, Robert Davis said, you know, when they launched the sky active engines about 2011 uh, you know, they got about between the, all the changes they did in the engines and transmissions and the structures, they got about a 30% boost in fuel efficiency from the prior generation. And for their next generation of vehicles, they're expecting about another 30% boost in overall efficiency yeah. uh, through, through more, you know, more of the same type of, of efforts. Uh, and part of that you know, is going to be and adding some electrification in there. You know, they're adding start stop and, and some light electrification, but they're also doing things with, uh, with hybrids, you know, they're going to be launching some hybrids and some battery electric vehicles in the coming years. And part of that is part of another announcement that came after uh, both uh, Davis and Schlem spoke uh, the, uh, this on, thir- on Wednesday. The following day, uh, there was an announcement that came out that uh, Toyota and Mazda would be um, expanding their, their tie up. Uh, they've had a relationship for a while now uh, that. For Toyota, uh, yielded the what was the Scion IA, and now the uh, Toyota Yaris IA. Um, it's what it's a, a crappy it's a, name. <laughs> tell me about it. It's actually it's actually a great. No, car it's, it's a fantastic car. It's a Mazda too. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, Mazda opted not to sell the, the the current generation two in the U.S. market because there just wasn't enough demand for for B segment cars. But um, you can buy a Mazda two from Toyota uh, as the IA, and um, they're now going to be um, following a similar pattern to uh, what Nissan and Renault have done with um, some cross ownership. And um, Toyota is buying um, a 5% stake in Mazda and Mazda is getting about a 1% stake in Toyota uh, just because Toyota is so much larger. They're each, they're each investing the same amount of money in the other, but that, that amount of money in Toyota is only getting them about a 1% stake. <clears throat> and um, uh, um, they're also going to be doing a lot more sharing of powertrains and, and other technologies going forward. So presumably Mazda is going to be getting some of uh, Toyota's hybrid technology and, and some of the other electrification stuff. And, and um, Toyota will benefit from some of Mazda's work on the sky active uh, engines. Yeah. Well, and th- th- so that next boost of efficiency that Mazda is looking for, that's a, a holistic approach because I remember when Skyactiv first launched, you know, we the initial impression was that, oh, it's a new engine brand. It's it's not. It's a very holistic approach and not just to the mechanicals, but to the 
the structure, like you, you mentioned, where they're they're designing the whole car. It's a you know, the, it's a systems approach, but it's also a, a, a whole vehicle approach. So that's where those efficiency gains, that next 30 percent is, is going to come from. They're not necessarily going to make a 60 percent efficient gasoline engine. Uh, there's definitely more efficiency to be had. But it, it overall, there's, you know, there's a whole other, you know, bunch of, of uh, energy savings, I guess, or energy efficiency to get out of out of the cars. And that's what what Moss is looking at. And I think that's part of what uh, Toyota gets out of it. Like I can immediately see with this lash up um, or this this deeper partnership, uh, I can sort of immediately see what what Mazda gets out of it. Um, they, they get money, they get stability. Uh, it was a little harder for me to figure what what Toyota gets out of it, but I, I think I think I've kind of understood uh, what the upside for Toyota is because you know the, Toyota doesn't need anything from Mazda. They're they're big. Uh, they can do anything that Mazda's doing. Toyota can do on its own. Um, not necessarily exactly the same, but, uh, you know, Toyota can fund a a sort of lightweight, holistic kind of philosophy if they wanted to. Uh, and I'm sure they're, they're, they're doing stuff in that, that sort of vein. Um, I think it's more like what you see in the supermarket, um, where you've got this wave of, of upstart brands, uh, or, you know, niche brands, that are very popular and they are very nimble and they do something that the long established brands can't necessarily do or haven't done. And these niche brands connect with consumers better. So uh, like you've got big companies now, like say, um, uh, I don't know, uh, Unilever, they make a lot of food stuff or uh, General Mills say, uh, instead of letting that competitor uh, either kick their ass in a segment <laughs> or or get bought by another large competitor and then kick their ass, uh, Toyota is sort of like neutralizing another big competitor by buying up a small competitor, right? Like uh, if Ford or GM were to invest in Mazda, Toyota wouldn't have that opportunity any longer. So Toyota can right now sort of preemptively invest in Mazda, take Mazda off the plate for another automaker or another company from from like Silicon Valley. Right. Like if if Tesla wanted to actually purchase an automaker, (laughs) you know, like an established automaker that has solved a lot of the problems that they're still struggling with to a certain degree, they they could just buy a smaller independent brand. with Toyota getting in there and, and sort of protecting its own turf by buying a, a, or buying into a competitor, uh, that that was sort of my my take on it was like that's that's maybe a, a defensive posture on their part and, and both companies benefit. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a reasonable way to to um, look at it. You know, I, I think you know part of it is you know. Mazda, you know, is, is obviously a much smaller player. They're about one and a half million sales globally. Um, and, you know, Toyota is about 10 million. And, you know, I think that there, there's some, 
some desire, particularly from Akio Toyota, you know, uh, Akio Toyota, the CEO of Toyota, uh, you know, is very much a, a car enthusiast. And I think he, he really likes the idea of what uh, Mazda is trying to do, you know, with the, the whole driving matters uh, tagline, um, you know, trying to build cars that people will really enjoy driving. Um, and so I think, I think there's probably a, some desire to to protect that and make sure that they have a have a place in the industry. Um, you know, and I think you know, longer term, I wouldn't be surprised if they expand their uh, their shareholding. One of the other thing parts of this deal is also um, uh, an announcement that they're going to build a new joint venture assembly plant in the U.S. Um, they didn't say exactly when that would be built. Um, although they, they said that it would build, uh, Corollas and, uh, Mazda crossover. Um, the Mazda crossover makes sense building more Corollas. I'm not so sure about, and I, I would be surprised if when the plant does actually go into operation, if it actually ends up building Corollas, um, just because, you know, that segment is, is shrinking. Um, I think it's going to be more like, yeah, like CHRs or something, you know, like. Yeah, that that would be more likely. Yeah. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think, um, you know, being able for Toyota, um, you know, from a business perspective, I think being able to um, add more scale to their electrification efforts, uh, both on the uh, battery electric drive and their hybrid stuff, uh, you know, by offer, you know, by using some of that same technology. Uh, for Mazda will, you know, will benefit them in terms of trying to drive their costs down uh, as well as, you know, if they can share battery technologies, things like that, that will help them get their costs down. Um, and if Toyota is in fact, um, you know, has developed some solid state battery technology that they're going to deploy as has been reported recently, you know, having another place where they can apply that with, with Mazda, uh, would also help them get their costs down uh, and be more competitive. So I think there there's some benefits to both companies from all this. Yeah. Oh, there, there definitely is. Um, it's just a, you know, the, it's an interesting development uh, when you, when you look at it from the outside, you're like, well, these companies compete directly. I, I could understand Toyota completely buying out Mazda and, and, you know, <laughs> shutting down that side of the competition, but it, like they, it's, that's not what they want to do. Uh, and they've also bought into other companies too. They, they own uh, a bit of a stake in Subaru. And I, I think they've, they've at least made overtures to Suzuki. Um, so it's this interesting sort of uh, move to consolidate some stability, I guess, or some, some, some sort of long-term uh, prosperity across multiple companies for the, the Japanese auto manufacturing sector and, and Toyota's Toyota's driving that for, for whatever you know reason. So I'll, I'll, I'll be interested to watch it play out. What I'm not the most hopeful about is that uh, they're talking about uh, working together on in-car electronics and neither Toyota nor Mazda have that uh, fully solved in a great way. <laughs> Mazda's a little better. Yeah. My, my guess is that's probably going to mean that uh, they're going to use a, a variation of the new, uh, Antune 3.0 in Mazda's going forward, um, which, you know, Mazda has previously announced that they're, that they plan to use, that they plan to add uh, Android auto and CarPlay support uh, to their, uh, their systems. And Toyota um, has, 
made it very clear that they have no intention of doing that. So that would be unfortunate if if that means that Mazdas don't get that functionality. Yeah. I mean, the the Mazda uh, control scheme with the little knob controller kind of, you know, the, the thing that they kind of lifted from the Europeans to a degree is much better than Entune. And the limited feature set of Mazda infotainment is, is better. Um, I, I haven't been impressed with Entune. I haven't haven't tried the latest you know entune 3 but ah uh, uh, the the demo the demo i got of that at ces back in january it was definitely an improvement yeah uh but you know we'll we'll see you know when i get a chance to uh actually drive the new camry um hopefully sometime in the next couple of months yeah i mean you know what like they'll they'll figure something out anything is an improvement on what entune is right now so I just hope that they both continue to improve with that. Because uh, especially since that can make or break the car. And when we're talking about cars that have some kind of soul in them too, like it's it's one of the things that frustrates me about Hondas is, is how the infotainment is. And that that's enough to drive a purchase decision, but I won't ramble about that. Well, they're, they're, well they're, they're definitely... Uh... <laughs> working on improving that the uh the new system that's in the odyssey and the uh the accord definitely looks uh much improved on that count good so there's hope there's hope for toyota and mazda to figure it out um maybe yeah. they'll just buy like an aftermarket supplier and take care of that one i mean they've got <laughs> toyota's money um all right so you also had uh the chance to speaking of aftermarket suppliers or i guess oem suppliers uh you had the chance to talk with um danny shapiro from nvidia while you were at the uh, car seminars. Yeah. So Danny is the uh, director of the automotive business at NVIDIA, uh, which, you know, uh, anybody who's into video games uh, is obviously probably very familiar with NVIDIA's uh, graphics cards, but NVIDIA um, also supplies a lot of chips um, that are used in automotive industry. Um, A lot of the infotainment systems from a lot of manufacturers are running on NVIDIA hardware now, uh, have been for many years. And um, more recently, as everybody's been working on automated driving systems, uh, NVIDIA has come on really strong there with their DrivePX platform, which uh, initially was uh, a development platform that, uh, you know, so basically they, they put together uh, a box, uh, an EC, an electronic control unit that could be used by uh, anybody developing autonomous drive systems uh, with some pretty heavy duty hardware in there and all the inputs and outputs uh, to handle all the, all the sensor inputs and, and be able to drive all the actuators. And, um, you know, those boxes, those development boxes sold for about $10,000, but now, uh, they've made a number of announcements over the last six months since CES uh, for production applications based on that architecture. Uh, and uh, starting at CES with uh, ZF uh, and their Pro AI ECU, and followed up by Bosch, uh, Toyota, and Volvo, uh, who've all announced that they're using, uh, they're planning to use NVIDIA hardware for their automated driving uh, systems. And uh, Audi is also using an NVIDIA system in the um uh the new a8 for their uh, level three automation system so uh let's uh go to my my chat with uh with danny uh where i also uh asked him about uh, artificial intelligence and uh what he thinks about the the little recent spat between um elon musk and uh, mark zuckerberg on that topic Ooh, that'll be good <laughs> yeah 
So you guys have been busy too. Lots things, of announcements since we things are uh, good. Yeah. last talked. Uh, you know, the, the ZF uh, thing mm-hmm. that you guys announced in January at CES. Right. The Bosch program, um, and uh, they're going to be. I, I understand. I believe they're going to be using uh, the Xavier chip. Mm-hmm. Is that going to be the first production application of the Xavier chip? But so Xavier comes out at the end of this year, okay. and um, yeah. So what we've announced um, is both. Bosch from a, a tier one perspective, um, but then also um, since then we've talked about Toyota, right? Toyota um, and Volvo, Volvo with Auto Leave, yeah. um, and an Audi. Basically, you know, Audi was at, at CES okay. um, as well. So that's really, I mean, that's the the transformation or the, the natural progression um, from Drive PX2, which is what. Um, Tesla system is based off of, and that's why, again, it's it's over 225 different groups that we're working with, um, from automakers to tier ones, that are using DrivePX in development. But for those that um, aren't going into immediate production, this is the target platform then. So it goes from that four-chip, much larger form factor, to something like this. And that's, Reducing, that's Xavier? This is Xavier, yeah. Okay. Um, this is this is the prototype, because the chip isn't back yet. Sure. Um, but again, we're, we're, we've already mocked up, we have the layout and everything. Um, but the beauty of the system is that it sort of becomes a time machine. People can do their development now. Um, this will be 30 million, or sorry, 30 trillion operations, whereas the DrivePX2 is 24 trillion. So we're increasing the performance. And again, while we're rapidly decreasing the energy consumption, so this will just be 30 watts. Right. Compared to DrivePX2, which again is much higher energy consumption because it has four chips currently. Right. And, and 30 watts, I mean, that, you know, that's that's really crucial for automotive application. Mm-hmm. You know, it's trying to trying to get the power consumption of all these systems right. down because you know, now you're adding a whole bunch of sensors. You're, there's going to and for especially as you get into high level automation level mm-hmm. four mm-hmm. and beyond, um, you, we also need redundancy for safety. That's right. Which is something I wanted to ask you about um, in terms of redundancy. Um, what do you see as the, from a compute platform perspective, what do you see as the requirements uh, for level four and beyond? Right. Um, so we have some customers that are looking at two of these platforms. And, um, but the other thing that we can do is be running different sets of algorithms concurrently and sort of um, checkpointing. Um, on, on, the and, hardware, uh-huh. on the same hardware, on the same piece yeah. of hardware. So, so again, it, it depends. So this is part of the flexibility and openness of our platform is that we're not saying, here's the box and this is what it does. Mm-hmm. This is a very powerful computer and it's fully programmable, updatable, and so it's designed to run neural networks, deep right. learning neural networks. So you've got enough performance and, headroom there to handle that's right. doing multiple parallel right. calculations. And so... Um, I'll just make sure. Okay, somebody was calling me. Um, so we can be running a variety of different neural networks that are doing different things. And, and think of it along the lines of sensor fusion, right? You have your cameras that have strength in terms of giving us detail that the radar can't, but the radar gives us depth better than the camera can, and these things complement each other. And so we can be running different kind of neural networks, some that would be detecting lanes and some that would be detecting objects. But then we also have 
have our open road net, which is the opposite of that. It's, it's detecting the open road, the lack of objects. And then we also have our pilot net, which is the end-to-end -end system, where it's just taking in a holistic view of the scene and mapping that to what it knows a driver has done in the past. And so we're not trying to detect lanes in that case. So if you're driving and the lanes disappear because it's construction or it was just repaved, you're not dependent on any one thing. So we basically have this redundancy of many different sensory inputs and types of inputs um, that help us paint that more accurate, complete picture. But at the end of the day, um, for full redundancy, you, you need some system. If this was to fail, you need to have something else running in parallel with it. All right. And certainly, you know, at, at, at that 30 watt consumption level, uh, power consumption level, it, it's I think it's totally feasible to run mm -hmm. two of these in parallel. Mm -hmm. um, what, do you think um, for you know for a level four or five system, um, do you would you want to run two identical platforms in parallel, or would you want to run a, an asymmetrical system, or, you know, or maybe two plus a watchdog? Um, or is that something you'd leave to the OEM to pretty, decide? Pretty much we do. We work with them on that, but they everybody has their own engineering teams, their own perspectives, and their and their own legal departments. Right. <laughs> right, and their own thresholds um, and sort of risk yeah. assessments. Um, but I think what, what we're seeing is um, the ability for these systems to... Um, monitor and diagnose themselves, uh -huh. um, that there's ways, I mean, I, I think one of the big issues, and I, I saw there was, um, there was an article, I assume there was a session about, well, you have to keep the sensors clean, yeah. right? Yeah, right? Yeah, so I mean, you have, that's, that's one of those very basic things from a mechanical standpoint, right. but you know, it doesn't really get talked about very much. Right, so again, I, I think what, what yeah, is a bigger concern is that the camera gets obscured or, um, or the radar, you know, there's, there's mud on something or whatever, and uh, it can't function, and so then there's there needs to be a way to um, rectify that situation, whether it's um, a self-cleaning system or um, you know an alert that that says somebody manually has to has to do something. But um, what what we do again is work with them to um, develop the system around the suite of sensors that they have, and depending on the level of autonomy they're targeting and the applications and use cases um, would really dictate A, how much compute they want to put in the vehicle um, and then architect that, that level of redundancy. And as, as you mentioned, it could be either, right? It could be two things in parallel. Um, it could be asymmetrical. Um, there could be some other, other watchdog system. Um, so, and I think, uh, you know, you might want to, in the short term, you have the level three system from Audi. Uh -huh. And again, there's extra redundancy built into that, multiple ways that the car can break and do things like that. So um, Palm or, or some of the other people at Audi, I'm sure, would, would be able to give you more details on, on the redundancy that they chose. Uh, they've asked me not to comment specifically. Sure. On and, you know, and at least in the, you know, in the case of a level three, you know, worst case, you know, if, if you have a failure like that, there is always the, the opportunity for handoff to, to a human. And when we start talking about level four, vehicles where there aren't any controls for someone to take over, sure. um, you know, then you do need to make sure you have some mechanism to you know, safely degrade and, mm -hmm. and bring the vehicle Correct. to a stop in a safe location. Um, speaking of safety, AI, mm -hmm. you know, um, a, a, big, a major component of, of what, you know, what you're doing in addition to the hardware compute platform is the software frameworks mm -hmm. that you provide mm -hmm. as well. 
and um, you know, neural nets and, and AI and, and these systems that train themselves to a degree. Um, how do we go about validating those kinds that's, of systems? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, and I think it's, I think people have the misconception that it's this black box, you have no idea what's going on inside of it. And, and that's not true at all. And I, I think um, um, next time you're in California, let me know, because we'll um, love to give you some demos of, of some stuff. But we have basically a visualization tool that um, we can probe down and dissect the layers of the neural network. And so we can feed it inputs and we can see exactly what's going on inside the net. We might not know why it figured that out, but we know what it's doing. And so by that I mean um, we showed an image and we can see what's activating different layers of the net. And did it miss a pedestrian? or did it misclassify something? And really, this is part of the debugging process that we use in the creation and training of the nets, and it's an iterative process um, as, as we're going through development. But we can see, okay, it missed that. We need to make a modification then to a layer in our neural network, perhaps. Um, or we retain it with more data and then we can see that the network develop and then solve those issues. The, the benefit that we have, again, is we know the inputs, we're feeding it. And so we can, we can test it very easily. Pedestrian, to detect it or not, mm -hmm. or in this lighting condition, or you know, wearing a trench coat, you know, whatever it may be. So um, we're able to really analyze with fine detail and, and fix things, and then we have the benefit to, because of the nature of these systems, if we've identified, okay, it misread that that's a fire truck and it thought it was you know, a minivan, whatever it may be. All we have to do is identify that and it goes back through all of its data and can then every time that it saw one of those, it will reclassify and basically it self-corrects um, inside the, the network, it rewires itself. And, um, and so the ability to test it and then you asked about validation. Again, we see once we've gone through and created uh, a deep neural net, we're able to run simulation. So we can run actual miles or video and whatever to test it. But then we can simulate millions of miles uh, of video of, of driving, essentially, different scenarios. And the benefit is we can do very complex scenarios, very dangerous scenarios in simulation so we don't risk um, any human life in that testing and validation process. And we'll be able to, I believe, um, show that these systems will be dramatically safer than any human behind the wheel. Yeah, in a conversation I had earlier this week with uh, Ryan Eustace from Toyota, he, he, used, he had a very interesting line, a great line that I think really applies to, to all this stuff, that in automated driving there's a lot of things that will happen that are um, individually rare but collectively common. Hmm. You know, so, you know, things that to any individual vehicle or any individual driver, you won't encounter very often. But in aggregate, across the entire yeah. population, yeah, you multiply it happen, by vehicle you know, miles. He, he used the example of a water main break, uh, you know, where there were, and he showed a video in his presentation of a number of emergency vehicles with flashing lights, you know, at an intersection that he, you know, he was stuck there, and he filmed it on his on his phone, uh, you know, and water running across the stream, and that's, you know, one of those individually rare, but it, it happens on a pretty yeah, regular yeah. basis. Sure, sure, sure. So, um, you know, the ability to capture information like that and then run run it back over and over again in simulations, I think, is, is extremely valuable. <laughs> and again, that's where this crowdsourcing 
element comes in, right? So if you have a small fleet of vehicles, they're driving around. <coughs> Excuse me, they're driving around. You don't see, you know, that person run across the street necessarily. But like you said, if you collect all the vehicles going, there's that person who's going to run out from the street. Um, and so the odds of, of collecting that on a limited number of vehicles are, are low. But then what, what you can do is have the fleet of vehicles that doesn't necessarily have to upload every mile it drove, but it's processing and it can then detect anomalies and upload the portion that's relevant. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so staying on the AI topic for a moment, uh, kind of a little bit of a tangent though. Um, recent weeks there's been some back and forth between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg on the topic of AI and whether, whether or not it's an existential threat to humanity. And any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I think um, what what we're looking at is, is training these systems to be um, superhuman in terms of performance and, and perception, but it's not free thought. Um, you know, we have AI systems that are able to diagnose cancer um, with incredible accuracy, but that's because it's been trained on that one specific thing. And so at that task, it becomes better than a, than a human. But um, the ability to then function as a complete doctor is not possible. Hey, great to see you. We'll be in touch. Um, do, do you know Palm? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, okay. Got okay. Um, and so, again, whether it's um, you know detecting um, you know things happening around the vehicle, or um, being able to um, help people figure out where to drill for oil or whatever, it's it's a tool that will help humans make better decisions and perform tasks better than humans. Um, but I'm not concerned. So superhuman at very specific tasks, That's but right. not not general intelligence. Yeah, th these are this whole notion is how do you train a system to do something? Now we are seeing it um, being used to compose music, right? Um, being able to create paintings, but it's been trained based on um, feeding it, you know, all of Matisse's work. And it understands then the style and the techniques of Matisse, and then you can now, there's like an app, right? You take a picture, and you can render that picture as if Matisse had created that. But again, it's very specific to that stream of data. And to have it say, I want to create something like Picasso, it won't be able to do it unless you've trained it on Picasso's style. Right? Right. Um, any anything else uh, you want to share that I haven't hit on? I mean, those are the main topics yeah, that well, I was interested I, in. I mean, we had a really short um, session in terms of presentation, but what I think is going to be really interesting um, is on the path to autonomy. We still have a fair amount before everything's going to be in place for four autonomous vehicles, but we have the ability to bring AI into the vehicle and combine. Um, sensors in the car with sensors outside the car to keep the occupants of the vehicle safe and to protect those outside the vehicle. Um, and so this notion of an AI co-pilot that um, I had some other video clips but I, I didn't have time to show them all but things like the car can sense 
you're at an intersection and the light turns green, we're monitoring everything around. We know that someone's about to run a red light. They're just, they're not braking. And so the driver may press on the accelerator to go into the intersection, but since we know this car is coming at a high rate of speed, we can disable that accelerator momentarily to prevent that collision. And so I think there's going to be a whole new wave of driver assistance type of systems that are based on artificial intelligence. Um, I'm at a stoplight and I'm gonna make a right turn. And you know, so what I'm doing, I'm kind of looking over to my left just to make sure there's no traffic so I can pull out. Well, how many times does then somebody forget to look this way and maybe someone stepped off the curb or there's a bicyclist there or something like that. So our system can see that the driver's not paying attention correlated with there's somebody right there to provide an alert or prevent them from running them over. Um, as opposed to if I'm looking forward and I, I'm looking at the direction that I'm not going to provide that alert. So I think there's a lot of, again, new interfaces in the car, um, new voice processing, um, other types of natural language back and forth between the vehicle and the occupants. Um, that will be this whole new user interface that's enabled by artificial intelligence. Great. Well, thank you very much. Dan. Okay. Thank Appreciate you. Your time. No, you too. All right. And we're back. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't have really, I don't think we had any questions. I know you put out the call. Did you see any come in? I haven't. So uh, actually, I, I forgot to put out the call. So. Oh, I must have been I, a retweet from last week. All right, then. Yeah. OK, so. Uh, so if there if there if there was anything we missed, we'll hit it next. Yeah, week. it's also midnight here. So on a Saturday, see how dedicated we are. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> so, all right. Well, this is uh, episode 34 of Wheel Bearings. Thanks for listening. We'll catch everyone uh, next time. See you next time. Oh, one more thing. Uh-huh, see? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have a new monthly column that has just started in uh, Automotive Automotive Engineering Magazine. So if you're a member of SAE, um, you'll get it in your in the August issue of your magazine. You'll find my new column in there. Um, or if you're not a member, um, you can, there'll be a link on the site. Uh, but you can go to uh, um, SAE.org and, and find uh, articles from Automotive Engineering, including my new column. That's excellent. Uh, congratulations on that. I have nothing illustrious to add. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll talk to you all next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.